Uh, my name is Bryant, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church, and it's my privilege to lead us in our next installment of our study in Ephesians as we explore further how God makes grace visible through the church. Now, as we dive in, I want to invite you to turn with me to the passage that our friend Allie just read for us, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, as we learn how God provides grace in intimacy. And let me say again, if you're a guest with us tonight, and maybe uh, if you've been with us for some time and you don't own your own copy of the scriptures, we'd love to provide you with that as a gift. Uh, So you can find that at the welcome table, the hospitality table. You can make your way over there and grab one as we study the scriptures together tonight, but definitely receive one of those as a gift from us at the conclusion of our gathering tonight. Now, when I think back over the years and remember the guys that I have been privileged to walk with as they have heard the gospel, begun to respond to the gospel in faith as they have repented of sin and as they begin to take steps to make progress in their walk with Christ. As I think about having the privilege to walk with so many and see that happen over and over again, I am just absolutely humbled. And as I read and studied in preparation for our time in the scriptures tonight, this week, I, I couldn't help but sense that my heart began to resonate with the Apostle Paul. You see, he was privileged to proclaim the gospel in Ephesus, to see people begin to uh, take the gospel in, to think the gospel through, and to turn the gospel out, responding in faith. He began to see people repent of their sins and began to take steps in Jesus' direction and begin to make progress in their faith, even to the point of seeing a church planted. And though at this point, as he is writing this letter to the church, even though he has moved on, Paul's heart is still in Ephesus, which is why he's writing this letter. And it's why, for that very reason, that I'm still in touch with many uh, of my guys and think of them often and even still regularly pray for them. My heart also resonates with Paul as I see his deep longing for them to to get it. <laughs> you see, he's, he's pouring out deep gospel truth. He's poured out deep gospel truth in this letter up until this point. But we see in today's passage a shift. No longer is he instructing them in the truth of who God is and, and what God has done and who they are in light of what God has done. He now turns to praying for them, knowing that it's only God in his grace that will make it possible for them to truly ever actually get it. And that intimacy with Christ is the means by which God will bring about that getting of it in their lives. So let's look first at Paul's prayer for intimacy. Uh, The first section uh, of the passage that we'll look at tonight is uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And we first find there the posture of of Paul's prayer for intimacy. The Apostle Paul begins this, this paragraph by declaring that it is for this reason that he is praying for the disciples he is writing to in Ephesus. This should, this should lead us then to take a step back and to refresh ourselves of the reason for which Paul is praying. So let's do that. Ephesians chapter three, beginning at verse eight through 13, says this. 
This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the ministry hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask that you not be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul then shifts gears, shifts gears in light of this and says, it's for this reason that I kneel. He bows in humble adoration to the God who has committed this grace to him, that he would have the privilege to be used to bring to the Gentiles the gracious knowledge of Jesus Christ through the gospel. That he would be able to proclaim this good news. And so he kneels in light of the fact that he can have and can be bold and has this confident access to God through faith in Christ. Paul then makes reference to the fact that God is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, there's some debate as to exactly what Paul was getting after here, whether or not he's speaking specifically of believers or uh, or or especially those who are alive uh, now or those who are away from the body, who have passed away and are away from the body and, and present or at home with the Lord, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Or if he's speaking more literally of every family, as it says. Now, I think there are good positions arguing for both. Uh, to speak of believers only, it would be further highlighting the beauty of God's work in Christ of tearing down the dividing wall of hostility between various people, groups, or ethnicities, creating one new man or a new race, as it were, resulting in peace and using us as the very building blocks of his holy temple of the Lord, which Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. We saw him outline this in Ephesians chapter two verse 14 and 15 now that's one position the other is paul nodding to the fact that there is nothing and that there is no one who exists apart from god that he is the creator of all every family every people group every social group every nation or however else persons might be related or identify themselves as being related to one another on earth and and those who are in heaven. Speaking to the spiritual authorities, Paul has already told us about in chapter one, verse 21, in chapter two, verse two, in chapter three, verse 10, and which he will encourage us to stand firm against in chapter six, verse 12. I believe this latter position is what the apostle is getting after when he says that God is the father from whom every family or every social group, every people group, every grouping of people is named, even those who are alienated from him in and due to their sinful rebellion. They still do not and cannot exist apart from God. You see, the glory and the mystery of the gospel is that though we were sinful and deserving of God's judgment and wrath, in his mercy through the cross of Christ, he saves us by his grace, calling us his children 
and thereby making it possible for us to experience intimate communion with him as our father. Frank Thielman, a commentator and theologian, puts it this way. God then is not only the father to whom believers can speak freely and confidently in prayer, but the creator and the powerful authority over all social groups, including the hostile spiritual powers ranged against believers. Paul establishes right out of the gate that he is in fact praying to the highest authority that there is. And so we see him transitioning then to his petitions. Look with me at verses 16 through 19. As Paul moves into articulating his prayer for the Ephesians, he outlines what I see are four points, four prayer points. First, he prays for strength by the Spirit. Secondly, he prays for Christ to dwell in their hearts. Third, he prays for comprehension of God's love. And fourth, he prays for them to know Christ's love. So let's take a moment to look at each one of these prayer points and learn more about how God grants us grace in intimacy. First, the prayer for strength in verse 16. Paul first prays that God would grant them to be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit. But that's not all he says. He prays that God would do it according to or in accordance with the riches of his glory. Now, if there's one thing Paul has set out to help us understand in this letter is that our God is immensely and immeasurably wealthy. He is rich. Look with me at a few of the ways that Paul has already described God to us. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, he says, in the beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Later on in that passage in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, He says, in Christ, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. I don't know about you, but when I think about someone who uh, is able to leave an inheritance, now anyone can leave an inheritance, but when I think about someone who is able to leave an inheritance, I'm sure, much like you, you think about somebody who has a lot of something to leave. And he has heirs, he or she has heirs, people, uh, a person or people that they are leaving this, this immense wealth or this wealth to. Where our God is so immensely rich, so immensely wealthy, that to each and every one of us that he saves by his grace, he he gives us an inheritance. And to further show how wealthy he is, he gives each and every one of us a down payment on that inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. We looked at this passage the last time I had the opportunity to lead us in studying the scripture. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then in Ephesians 3.8, we just read it, Paul says that this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. And so, Paul prays that the Father would grant his children, those who he has saved by his grace, according to the riches of his glory, which means at the level of and at the the level of the extravagance of his wealth, that he would grant them to be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit. You see, there's just so much packed in this little verse. I think one of the things to recognize is that Paul is praying that the saints be strengthened, which in my mind leads me to believe that, that he thinks that in some way they are not strong enough at best or weak in the worst, which if we're honest, both are true of us on any given day in our walk with Christ, right? He goes on to ask that they be strengthened with power, not with strength. (laughs) Don't strengthen them with strength. Strengthen them with power and not in their muscles, but in their inner being. Another translation would say in their inner man. That part of us that has been redeemed and is being renewed day by day, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, that many refer to as the heart or the soul, the very essence of who we are. And the very source of this power that gives strength to our inner being is none other than the Holy Spirit who we already possess. Why? Because he is the down payment of the inheritance we received because we have heard and believed the gospel. Paul first prays for strength and we'll soon understand why. But let's take a moment to explore the second of his prayer points in this passage. The prayer for Christ to dwell. The first part of verse 17, Paul now prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. This is somewhat of a strange prayer to pray for those who are already in Christ, right? You might think that you would pray for someone who has not yet believed the gospel that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. But he is praying this for those he is calling saints. They've heard the word of the gospel and believed already. Well, just as it is important for them to be strengthened with power in their inner being, it is equally important that Christ is dwelling in their hearts in order for God to get the full glory that he desires and that he deserves from the lives of those that he has saved by his grace. So the question we should ask then is, what does it mean to dwell. Well, very commonly, plainly, it means to reside, to live in, be housed, to lodge, or to stay. And here's a word that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. It means to abide. Paul sees the need to pray 
that Christ would take up residence in the hearts of these saints so that God's purposes might be fulfilled. So you might be thinking, what does this look like practically then? Well, I think Paul gives us a really good picture in his letter to the Galatians in chapter two, verse 20. Look at it with me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that, that I, you, us, we have been put to death with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. So then it's no longer us who are living our everyday lives or calling the shot as, calling the shots as it were. But it's Christ living in me, Christ living in us. And this life that we live in the body, the life of hanging out with friends, the life of going to work, uh, the life of, of being entertained, the life of preparing for finals, the life of pursuing our passions, our hobbies, our interests, our every thought, word, and deed should then be done in faith or by faith in the only one who could rescue us from our spiritual deadness, from our spiritual disobedience, and from the the wrath and the judgment of God that we rightly deserve because of our sin. You see, as we surrender our lives and our wills to Christ by faith, he then dwells in and lives through us. This, this should be the confession of each and every one of us who professes faith in Christ, who are believing the gospel that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is how intimacy with God looks and feels. It's very, very personal, but it is not private. The Bible is very clear that the mystery of the gospel is that God is rescuing individuals, yes, but that in his salvific work, he is creating a people for his own possession. He rescued us from our hopeless orphan state and made us sons and daughters, giving us an inheritance, giving us a name, giving us an identity when we did not have one before. Now, as we strive together as a faith family in this city, I think it should be a normal aspect of our shared lives because we are not just saved to ourselves. We are saved to be a part of God's people. So I think it should be a normal aspect of our shared lives to ask one another and to talk about how we're experiencing God's grace in intimacy as we live by faith in Christ and to continually to on, on an ongoing basis be calling one another to once again believe the gospel. The good news that we are no longer dead, but alive in Christ. The good news that we are saved by grace, not through our works. The good news that, that we are God's children. We are not orphans. We are not strangers. We are not aliens. We, are, we no longer have enmity between us and God. The good news that we have been given an inheritance, that we have been given the spirit of God, that we can abide in Christ and that he will dwell in us. The good news of the gospel that we have everything we need because our father is immensely wealthy. Therefore, we lack for nothing. This is the kind of gospel ministry that should be happening when we gather and catch up with each other on Sundays when we gather like this. This is the kind of ministry that should be happening in our missional communities and this is the kind of ministry that should be happening in our DNAs. 
Paul even goes on to pray in the direction of how we are to share our hope and joy in the gospel. So let's look at the next prayer point. The prayer for comprehension. Verses 17 and 18. Paul goes on to say, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and depth of God's love. Now in this prayer point, Paul uses the terms rooted and established. In other translations, established might be grounded. They are both relating to growth. The first refers to the growth of a plant and the second uh, to the growth of a building. And you'll remember that in the passage we studied last week that Paul referred to the saints as being a building, being put together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Well, he prays that these believers have deep roots and a firm foundation in love. The love that God has displayed to us and to the watching world through the cross of Jesus Christ. And having asked that, having prayed that, he goes on to pray that that together, together they would be able to comprehend what is incomprehensible. The length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. Now theologians debate what the dimensions being considered are of or for, but most agree that it's likely that Paul is referring to this temple that he talks about at the end of chapter 2. Brian Chappell, in his commentary on Ephesians, says it this way. The temple is rooted and established in love, and its foundation enables us to consider the dimensions of the spirit-filled temple that also expresses the width and length and height and depth of God's love. The words of this beautiful verse crystallize all the thoughts that the apostle has expressed thus far in this epistle. Paul has described a temple of built of persons of all nations and races. This dimension shows that Christ's love is as wide as the world. See Ephesians 2.19. Paul has said the divine love that designed this temple extends into eternity past and keeps us for eternity future. So Christ's love is as long as eternity. Paul has pictured this temple of living stones joined together and rising to heaven where even the heavenly hosts gape at its glory. So Christ's love is as high as heaven. And Paul even related that this divine love reaches past the depths of our hell-deserving sin to give us family status before God. So Christ's love is as deep as hell. Paul prays that the saints at Ephesus and us, for that fact, are able to comprehend all the incredible dimensions and aspects of God's love. Something, quite frankly, that is impossible unless God opens and enlightens the eyes of our hearts and minds to it. And that work is one that he accomplishes by the Holy Spirit the down payment of the inheritance that is ours because of believing and responding to the gospel. So Paul then shifts to his last prayer point, and it is this, the prayer to know 
Christ's love. Now, in addition to praying that they were able to comprehend the incredible multidimensional love of God, Paul goes on to pray that these saints would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. He knows that even if they're able to comprehend the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love, that there is still yet more. He knows that the love of Christ goes beyond knowledge. It goes beyond the facts that can be known by way of reading and research. I believe Paul is praying that they and we have an experiential knowledge of Christ's love. I think that, that the thrust of this whole prayer, he's been praying this whole time for things that, that should already be theirs because they are believers in Christ, right? But I believe the thrust of this whole prayer is that they would know Christ in a more intimate and experiential way. You see, there's a difference in knowing things about God and knowing God. Having a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. You see, there are many of us who know the facts of the Christian faith. Many of us know who God is, but we don't all know God. Many of us know that the Bible declares that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but not all of us know this in that we are trusting in his death on the cross as the payment for our sins and submitting to him as the king of our lives. Many of us know about the third person of the Trinity, but not all of us are, know him in that we experience his power in our lives to overcome sin and temptation and to have our hearts and our minds illumined to the truth in the scriptures. Many of us know what the Bible says of how God promises or what God promises to those who trust in the gospel. But not all of us know this in that we have a sense of confident assurance that these promises belong to us. Paul prays that the the Ephesians would move beyond knowing the facts and facets of the truth in their heads, which is absolutely important. It's foundational. It's fundamental. But he is praying that they would experience the reality of these truths in their everyday life because they are the prerequisite to experiencing the life God rescued and redeemed us to experience, which is the life of Christ. And Paul has prayed all of this up until this point for this purpose. Verse 19, latter part of the verse, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul has been headed for this destination ever since he set out writing this letter. He has wanted to submerge the Ephesians in sound doctrine and praying all the while that it sinks in deep into their hearts so they can truly experience God in their lives. That they and we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now I think this gets after the significance of what Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 verses 21 through 23. I think it's echoed all through this prayer of Paul. Jesus prays this in John 17. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely 
One, that the world may know you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. Now remember what Paul said about us being built into a holy temple at the end of chapter two? He said, in him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. You're being built together as a holy temple in the Lord for God's dwelling in the spirit. You see, God's grace and intimacy is so that we, the church, might experience communion with him in the way Jesus did so that the world might know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who is sent to save sinners and to bring everything together, as he says in Ephesians 1, both things in heaven and things on earth. Paul prays this prayer for the church so that grace might be made visible to the watching world as we are filled with all the fullness of God. Then Paul shifts gears. No longer is he praying for them, offering intercession. His intercession pivots to praise, to adoration, praising God, the one who is able to bring about this this intimacy in our lives. First, he, he talks about the object of adoration in verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now, what Paul has been laying out before us is an, is an unimaginable but beautiful, spectacular picture of what God is about doing in the world by his grace through the cross, forming a people for his own possession, creating this holy temple of the Lord that he wants to dwell in so that the whole world might see what he is doing and what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. This sounds great. As we back up to to chapter two and he talks about uh, tearing down this dividing wall of hostility that separates peoples and and ethnicities, we think, man, thinking about our present day, our current climate in the world, not just in our nation, we think, man, that kind of ethnic or racial harmony, that is absolutely impossible. That's something that, that we would love to see happen, but can it really happen? Well, Paul says here, now, After praying all of this, in light of all of that, now to him, the father from whom every family in the world has received its name, now to him who is able to do. Another translation would say exceedingly and abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think. When I think about this passage, this particular verse, I I think back to uh, several years ago when I was a student pastor and I was doing youth ministry and uh, spending the summer with my guys and girls, I can't remember, they were maybe juniors and seniors in high school, but it was a sweet time together. We would gather every Thursday night uh, in a different location. Uh, we'd maybe be at my house, we'd be at another student's house, and we'd just bounce around. Uh, and we'd gather together, we'd hang out, and there would be at some point in the night that we would open the scriptures. We used these, uh, these little... Um, discussion starter books called uh, Would You Rather? Uh, it had it some crazy little youth ministry questions or whatnot. But God in his grace would always uh, lead us into uh, a deep exploration of the scriptures just by using something with such levity. Uh, and one night we ended up here in Ephesians chapter three at verse 20. 
And the, the version of the Bible, the translation uh, we were using at that time is called the New Living Translation. Great translation. It's written on a sixth grade level. So uh, if you're discipling someone in the faith, maybe they're, they're a young person or uh, just for ease of understanding, New Living Translation is great for that. Uh, but this verse in the New Living Translation says, uh, now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or imagine. And I remember meditating on that. <laughs> kind of like in this moment, like as if I'm preaching right now and I read something, and it's like, man, like that's a light bulb moment. I remember in that moment in Bible study reading that and thinking, wow, guys, our God is so awesome, so great, so powerful that he is able to do above and beyond not just anything that we can ask him to do, but anything you can even imagine. You see, the work that Paul is describing, that God is bringing about in Christ, in the world that is, sounds unimaginable. There will be a never, there'll never be a day where we see such peace and such harmony between people and people groups. Will there ever truly be a day that the world will really see a group of people in which the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God is resting on, is dwelling in, in such a way that the world recognizes that Christ is the one that he sent to save them? We would think that is absolutely unimaginable. But our God is able. He is able to do that and so much more. Paul moves from praying for these saints and these disciples in Ephesus to praising the God who is able to do everything he has asked and he can do that much more. He says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think. And how does he do it? He does it according to the power that is at work in us. What is this power? It's the power that Paul has already prayed for the Ephesians to possess, the power in their inner being by the Holy Spirit. God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. I always say that very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit. Paul turns his, he transitions from intercession to adoration and praising God for the intimacy that he and only he can bring about unimaginable intimacy. So with that church, let me encourage you when you pray, hopefully it's not an if you pray, when you pray, set your imagination in motion because our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond anything you can ask him to do and even imagine him to do. So Paul points to the object of his adoration and then he goes on to to show the overflow of adoration as he is praising the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. He says to him, to this very one, be glory in the church here amongst God's gathered people in which he wants to dwell by his spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, not just now, not just 
and my kids or in their kids, but to all generations for how long? Forever and ever. It harkens back to what he talks about, what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, that, that God has desired to display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Jesus Christ for generations, for, for the times that are to come. God deserves and wants to receive glory in his church, and he will receive glory in Christ Jesus, not only now, but for all generations, forever and ever and ever. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know Christ intimately, and he praises God that he can bring it about by the power of his spirit. And I want you to know tonight, church, that I, we, the pastors, the elders of the Hallows Church, we pray that prayer for you, that you would be strengthened with the strength of God by his spirit in your inner being, that you would together be able to comprehend the love of God. What is the, the width, the length, the height, the depth, that you would be able to, to know Christ's love that surpasses all understanding so that so that the hallowed church might be filled with all the fullness of God to the praise of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me tonight, church?